Hey, Crossings Podcast community. This week's teaching is called The Anxious Search for Christ and is part two in our series on the book of Luke. It was taught by Molly Conaway on September 24th, 2023. Thanks for listening. Good morning. How are y'all? Good to see you. Thanks for being here. Um, That song, Abide With Me, was written in 1847 by an Anglican-Scottish minister named Henry Francis Light. And that song, Abide With Me, was actually um, written from a verse, from a story that we find at the very end of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, We are in the middle of a study of the Gospel of Luke. These stories about the life of Jesus, we're rereading this book as a community, holding open the questions about what we may find out about Jesus that we've never seen or known before. Questions about what might surprise us as we enter into this. Last week, uh, Caleb um, opened up this study. Um, I think he said that God is a cat. I'm not sure if you were here, but I'm pretty sure that he said that God was a cat. Jesus is a cat. So things that are surprising, that was one. Um, But we're entering into this study paying special attention to the Jesus the writer Luke wants us to know, wants us to see, which might not be the Jesus that we think we know. So back to that song, Abide With Me. Um, It comes from Luke chapter 24. We won't get to Luke chapter 24 until March, and we'll all probably forget this by then anyway. Um, But in Luke chapter 24, after Jesus had died and rose again, spoiler alert, sorry, He was walking alongside some of his friends uh, to a village called Emmaus, and the friends were confused, and they were sad. The trust and the hope that they had um, put in Jesus to be the one to subvert the oppressive power of the Roman Empire was now gone. Uh, They lost him. But Jesus wasn't lost. He was actually right there with them along the road as they were walking. But the friends didn't recognize him, and as the friends Um, as Jesus was going to keep going, the friends asked him, stay with us, because it is almost evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went to stay with them. You can see in the King James, this is, the friends asked Jesus, abide with us, stay with us. And Jesus stayed with them. Um, And as he was breaking bread, they discovered who he really was. And the story goes that Henry Francis Light Uh, was dying of tuberculosis when he wrote this poem called Abide With Me, uh, based on this story in Luke. And weeks after Light wrote it, he passed away, and his new poem was sung for the first time at his funeral. Uh, We're not actually studying Luke 24 today. We are only in Luke chapter 2. But like in Luke 24, our story today is about other people who lost Jesus, other people who were looking for Jesus, and the Jesus they lost and the Jesus they discovered turned out to be more elusive and mysterious than they had imagined. So we have two stories that we'll read today. Both stories take place in the temple, the center of religious and political and social life, and these stories are the only stories we get about Jesus' life as a child. They are exclusive to Luke, so you don't get them in Matthew, Mark, or John's tellings. Here's how it goes, Luke chapter 2, verse 21. When the eighth day came, it was time to circumcise the child, and he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. 
as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. I think it's important to pause and recognize that there is a lot of historical and social and religious language here that we probably don't understand. Uh, and while we don't have time to get into everything like circumcision and purification, the significance of Jerusalem, the firstborn male sacrifices, we can recognize here the way Jesus was raised in a deeply religious home and family. Jesus was formed by the religious practices of the Jewish community he was part of. I am learning that I, that we, can do better at honoring and recognizing and learning more about the Jewish Jesus and how engaging this will likely lead us, will likely lead me to a deeper understanding and appreciation of the story we find ourselves part of. There's a book called The Misunderstood Jew by Amy Jill Levine. Amy Jill Levine um, is Jewish. Uh, she is a New Testament scholar at Vanderbilt. She says this, she says, by seeing Jesus as a Jew with regard to both belief and practice, Christians can develop a deeper appreciation for the teachings of the church. Today, Jesus' words are too familiar, too domesticated, too stripped of their initial edginess and urgency. Only when heard through the first century Jewish ears can their original edginess and urgency be recovered. She said, consequently, to understand a man from Nazareth, it is necessary to understand Judaism. More, it is necessary to see Jesus as firmly within Judaism rather than standing apart from it. And it is essential Judaism not be distorted through the filter of centuries of Christian stereotypes. A distorted picture of first century Judaism inevitably leads to a distorted picture of Jesus. So back to Luke chapter 2. As faithful Jewish families did after a child is born, you go to the temple and participate in these purity rituals and formally present this new baby before God. So Mary and Joseph took their new baby and their two birds as sacrifices, a sacrifice of poor or lower middle class folks, and made their way to the temple. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. 
there's this old traditional church hymn. Uh, it's pretty famous. It's called the Nunc Dimittis, which is Latin for now dismiss. And it basically sings through Simeon's prayer here. It comes from the scene in Luke where Simeon, one who was told that he would be alive to meet this Messiah, the anointed one, uh, the one God would send to console and heal and restore Israel, one that would initiate a different kind of kingdom from that of Caesar Augustus. But time was running out. And Simeon held the baby and knew this is what this was. So he said to God, now you've dismissed your servant. I can be dismissed. I can rest in peace now. And we usually read this story of Simeon um, around Advent, around Christmas, a time when we normally talk about the birth of Christ. Um, and it's bells and praises and joy. But not everything Simeon says is a high note. His song, his prayer, his prophecy um, would have been confusing for a lot of people. Because Simeon saw Jesus, one who would, yes, bring light and hope and restoration and make whole. But Simeon's prediction, Simeon's prayer, also says that this restoration and wholeness would be for all people, not just the Jews. That Jesus' life and ministry and mission would include the Gentiles and the Samaritans. It would include the people on the outside, on the margins. And that's not what people expected or planned for. And like Amy Jillivine said, I don't know if we can understand the edginess of this because of how far removed we are from how confusing it would have been for all people to be included. The text says that Mary and Joseph uh, were amazed. They were in wonder. You know, most parents think their child is like special and unique, but you have to think that Mary and Joseph started questioning what was ahead for them and their kid. And at this moment, Simeon turns and looks Mary in the eye, and I imagine his expression changes. And he speaks to her words that I imagine she replayed in her head for the rest of her life. Frederick Buechner says what he, what Simeon, saw in Mary's face was a long way off. But it was there so plainly he couldn't pretend. He would have rather bitten off his tongue than said it, but in that holy place he felt he had no choice. Then he handed her baby back, departed in something less than the perfect peace he dreamed of all the long years of his waiting. This is what Simeon tells Mary. Simeon blessed them and said to his mother, this child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too, Mary. Jesus' life and ministry would include all people. It would include people on the outside, the least of these, but that would not be without great cost. The mission of God through this baby would cause some to rise and some to fall, and those who rise and those who fall would likely frustrate people's expectations. And for Mary, to be the mother of the holy and anointed one, her journey would not be easy. It would feel as if a sword has pierced her soul. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel in the tribe of Asher. She was of great age, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, then as a widow to the age of 84. 
She never left the temple, but worshiped there with fasting and prayer night and day. At that moment, she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to who all were looking for, the redemption of Jerusalem. When they had finished everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. So you have Anna, another old saint, living at the temple, watching, looking, searching for a Messiah, a promised deliverer, for the one who might make a difference here, living out her final days, dedicating her whole being to a moment that she wasn't sure was going to come. And Anna confirms Simeon's prophecy about this baby, that God was doing something new in a way that would fulfill a lot of old promises. This is the way Luke begins the story. And then Luke jumps ahead 12 years. I think Caleb referred to this last week as an episode of the Wonder Years, which is exactly right. But verse 41 says this, Now every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. Again, remember, these are parents who kept the laws of Judaism. And when he was 12 years old, they went up, as usual, for the festival. When the festival was ended and they started to return, the boy, Jesus, stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents were unaware of this. Assuming that he was in a group of travelers, they went a day's journey. Then they started to look for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days, they found him in the temple. Luke is not subtle in his foreshadowing of another time later in Jesus' life when he would be lost for three days. And sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and answers. So we've already been introduced to a Jesus who was deeply formed by the synagogue and the temple, and now we find out that Jesus clearly knew Torah, the Jewish scriptures, and could banter about it with literally the best of them. And you have to wonder, was he so good at this? Did he know all these things because he was, you know, God? Like, was this a miraculous, supernatural divinity thing? Or was Jesus just like an above-average student? There are some stories um, out there that aren't in our Bibles, extra canonical is the word, or apocryphal, outside of the canon that we have in our Bibles. Um, One of those is called the Infancy Gospel of Thomas, which has these extra stories of Jesus as a child that are a bit more whimsical. In one episode, Jesus makes pigeons out of clay from the ground and then brings them to life. Uh, There's another story of Jesus killing his friends and then getting in trouble by his parents so so then he resurrects them. Um, So a story of Jesus getting lost, debating Torah with leaders at the temple is like much more restrained. But imagine the scene here. This pilgrimage to Jerusalem for Passover, it was not a short trek. It probably took a few days, and this was a big event. The crowds, the caravans, the animals, the people, Mary and Joseph and Jesus traveling with friends and family and neighbors, these close-knit communities. And the crowds begin clearing out after the festival, 
and the caravans begin heading home. And I can imagine Mary looks at Joseph and asks if he's seen Jesus. And Joseph probably says, yeah, I'm sure he's just like with his cousins somewhere. It's fine. I'm sure it's fine. Yeah. And they arrive and he's nowhere. We struggled this week to figure out how to teach the kids upstairs this story. Like, it's okay to run away from your parents' kids as long as you run to church. Um, I'm sure that's out there somewhere, by the way. I'm sure that's been taught for. Here's how the story goes. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Child, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. He said to them, these are the first, the earliest recorded words of Jesus that we get. This is Jesus' opening line, the whole thing. Why were you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. And his mother treasured, um, treasured is kind of a romanticized version of this. It's more like she pondered it, like she thought about it. Um, she stored this moment in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in years and divine and human favor. You can feel like the tension of this scene, can't you? Like Mary frantically searching for her son finds him and then in a very public, I imagine, setting says, son, why, why have you done this? What are, you, what are you talking about? What do you mean your father's house? Your father's Joseph. This episode is one that stayed with Mary. Have you ever been away from a kid, your kid, an Easter nephew, a friend, um, and you're only away for like a few days, like three or four days or a week, and you come back, and for some reason you can't pinpoint it, but this, the kid seems like way older than they were like three days earlier? The Jesus Mary lost was not the same Jesus she found. I imagine he seemed older. Who is this child she discovered in the temple? And what happened to the Jesus she knew? Like, did you notice the contrast of Mary and Joseph's anxious searching with the calm response of Jesus when they find him? Like, maybe this is normal preteen, like, interaction. Like, what's obvious to the child is not at all clear to the parents and vice versa. But I just can't help but think about Mary's panic as she searches for her boy who went missing, and the response that she gets when she finds him. And I wonder if she recalled back to Simeon's prophecy, like the sword pierces the mother who believes she's lost her son. Why were you searching for me, Jesus asked. Jesus didn't seem to think he was lost. And the point I want to make this morning is simple and it's brief. Something happened in Mary and Joseph's anxious search for Jesus. And the Jesus they found wasn't the same Jesus they expected him to be. And I can't help but wonder if many of us also feel like we are in the middle of an anxious search for a God who feels lost or missing, not where God used to be or where we prefer God to be. Just a couple weeks ago, I was talking to somebody who was telling me their story um, about how much time and energy and effort 
they've put into their faith over the years. The studies, the meetings, the disciplines, the songs, the prayers, the money, the groups, decades of faithfulness. And that for no reason in particular, they find themselves in a place at a point where God is hard to find. A point where they're not sure where to go or how to be. A point where faith in general seems confusing and disorienting and disappointing. And they told me that they passed a church sign that said something like, if God is distant, guess who moved? And after reflecting on a lifetime of faithfulness, said with tears and sadness and anger and disappointment, but I haven't moved. And hearing that felt like a sword had pierced the soul of someone searching for God. Call it a dark night of the soul. Call it deconstruction. Call it losing faith, losing God, losing Jesus. Mary lost Jesus. And it wasn't because she was a bad mother. It wasn't due to her lack of faithfulness. She was a good Jewish mother, remember? She showed up for the rituals. She showed up for Passover. She didn't really do anything wrong. And when she finally found him, she found him more surprising and mysterious than he was three days earlier. And this is probably the most important part of the story. The text says, and she didn't understand. Later in the story, Jesus will warn his friends that they would lose him too. That he would be lost in the darkness of death for three days. And the text says, and his friends didn't understand. The point is this. For those of you who feel like you are in the middle of an anxious looking, an anxious searching for a God who seems to be lost, a Jesus who is hard to understand, number one, it's okay. <laughs> It doesn't necessarily mean you've done anything wrong. Number two, you're not alone. The holy mother of God and Jesus' closest followers felt it too. You're keeping company with others who felt it or feel it. Why are you searching for me? Jesus asked. Let's start there. We come to this table each week <clears throat> looking for God, looking for Christ. And what we find here, uh, some bread and some wine uh, that is supposed to be to us the body and the blood of the Jesus we're looking for. And some, some days, some Sundays, we may find something of who Jesus is here at this table. And some days we might find simply some bread and some wine, and that's okay. We also find each other at this table each week, a group of ordinary folks who are supposed to be to us the walking, talking image bearers of the love of God that we're looking for. And some days we might find someone else at this table. Who is that for us, with us? And some days we simply might find other ordinary humans, and that's okay. The point is that every week we recommit to looking we return and remind ourselves and each other that the story of Jesus that we participate in each week at this table 
is bigger and deeper and more surprising and more mysterious than we will ever understand. So I invite you all, if you'd like, to participate in this meal with us. We have gluten-free crackers. If you'd like that instead of bread, we have grape juice. If you'd like that instead of wine, just let us know. Um, but I'm going to read a prayer by Thomas Merton, uh, a monastic, a theologian, and author. Uh, we've read this prayer before, uh, but I found it to be especially fitting for our study today. Would you pray with me? My Lord God, I have no idea where I am going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end. Nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope I have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, I will trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. Amen. I invite you to come when you're ready. <laughs>